This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and speak to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service, and prior to that, had a storied career as a foreign correspondent in East Asia. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing great, Matt. It's Friday and it's a weekend ahead of us. So you're feeling good. So this week, I will be looking at Myanmar. The military takeover has triggered outrage, economic ruin and violence in all corners of the country. I'll be speaking to a journalist who will tell us about life in the main city of Yangon since the coup. But first, COVID-19 in Taiwan. The self-governing island dodged the pandemic bullet in 2020, but it's now grappling with its worst outbreak of the virus yet. We have an RFA visitor currently in quarantine to tell us about how Taiwan is responding to the health crisis. So over to you, Paul. Thanks, Matt. My guest today is Min Mitchell, RFA's Northeast Asian counterpart to Matt, who back to her native Taiwan in early May, only to find herself in the middle of the outbreak. It's almost never fun to live the story you're covering. Taiwan's Central Epidemic Command Center on Friday reported 312 local COVID-19 cases, including 72 of unknown origin. The island declared a heightened state of restrictions, limiting the size of social gatherings and closing schools and non-essential businesses. Thank you for making time for us, Min. Thank you for having me, Paul. Now tell us what you've experienced in your nearly two weeks in Taiwan in terms of the quarantine and the outbreak and how it was handled. Yeah, it's pretty surreal. So I arrived in Taipei on the 5th of May. And right after I got off the plane, I was asked to get a Taiwan cell phone SIM card and install an app on my phone so that the government can call and text me every day to follow up on my situation. They can also locate where I am through the app to make sure I don't sneak out of my quarantine facility. I was then driven to a hotel by a designated taxi, stayed in the hotel for 14 days, by myself, which is mandatory in Taiwan. The isolation would have been fine when you know there's an end to it and a normal world is awaiting uh, all this fabulous Taiwanese food I've been dreaming for the past year. Uh, But unfortunately, in the middle of my 14-day quarantine, Taiwan had the worst community outbreak since the pandemic started. I was nervously watching TV in my hotel room every day and the cases just kept going up and spike to above uh, 200 a day. I know it doesn't sound many to us who live in the US, but it's a lot for Taiwan. And the government announced a two week level three alert on the 14th of May, and the country's basically now in a soft lockdown. All the schools, non-essential business are closed and people started to telework. Wow, well, Taiwan is not alone in having a relatively good 2020 with the pandemic and then turning around to face this. So I ask you, are people surprised to be hit by this wave after Taiwan's considerable success in avoiding the major outbreak last year? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, Having lived a normal life throughout 2020, this is definitely a shock in the system for Taiwanese people. As soon as the government announced the soft lockdown, the streets in Taipei went empty immediately. People were really scared. And Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, has tested uh, negative on the 20th because one of the worker in her residence uh, was confirmed to be infected. So the atmosphere now in the country, you can tell people are panicked 
and people are really staying on a high alert, uh, trying to make through this two-week soft lockdown and see what happens. What stands out in your mind between the behaviors you're seeing now in Taiwan in response to this and what you experienced for more than a year in the United States? We had some people panicking, but we also had a lot of people not believing anything was wrong. Yeah, this is sort of like a deja vu for me. What Taiwan is going through now is literally like what we went through in the U.S. in spring 2020. In general, I would say the Taiwanese people are more cooperative with the safety protocol as they have witnessed what the world had gone through last year. Most people are completely fine with wearing masks indoor or outdoor, but like most crowded Asian cities, I think social distancing is an issue. I still see when I arrive in the airport, I still see people being very close to each other. To me, I immediately feel awkward because we have been practicing social distance for quite some time. But in Taiwan, I think people are still trying to get used to the notion of that they have to be distanced uh, uh, from others. Sure. And it's not easy, like you say, on crowded streets or in crowded places. One of the things that may have contributed to the resurgence in some parts of Asia is because they didn't have a mass infection last year, they didn't move with urgency to get the vaccination program going. So what are the prospects for getting mass vaccinations rolling in Taiwan at this point? Yeah, I think that's also an issue that Taiwan is facing now. Initially, Taiwan only had Oxford, AstraZeneca because of all the news reports about the side effects and stuff. It was not popular. The government couldn't get many people to take the vaccines for a month. And after the latest outbreak, you can't even get them. So the Taiwanese government just received 400,000 AZ from Europe on the 19th, and they have put in the order for 5 million Moderna vaccines from the U.S., which is supposed to arrive in June. And everybody is hoping this will help to get the situation under control. And Taiwan is also developing its own vaccines, which the president, President Tsai, uh, has said that she herself would take the Taiwanese-made vaccine. So it looks like if everything's on schedule, Taiwan should be able to do mass vaccination in July or August. That's at least encouraging, I would say. Now, Chinese state media are gloating about this, claiming that they should have embraced the motherland or, you know, their usual propaganda line to some degree. And I'm not sure that anybody in Taiwan really takes them seriously. But how is China trying to take advantage of Taiwan's situation now? We've seen reports that they're trying to use vaccine diplomacy to lure away Honduras, a diplomatic partner of Taiwan, one of few in the world, and also that they're using the coronavirus to flood the island with disinformation. What are you seeing? Yes, indeed, Paul. While the Taiwanese government is fighting the pandemic, they are very much aware of the infodemic that's going on as well. Right after the latest outbreak happened in Taiwan, immediately, on Chinese social media, WeChat, Weibo, a lot of Chinese netizens started to say Taiwan is going to become India 
Taiwanese government hasn't done enough for the people, and there are a lot of uh, misinformation being passed around through mobile apps among the Taiwanese as well. A lot of rumors saying Taiwanese government refused to buy 30 million vaccines from certain countries. They're not doing enough to protect the citizens for political reasons. So there are a lot of these type of rumors going around, which made the situation more unstable for the people. Right now, the Taiwanese government has been telling people, be suspicious of any messages you see, fact check the messages, and do not spread any messages that are untrue. There is even a law in Taiwan that if people spread misinformation, you can be fined as much as 100,000 US dollars and sentenced up to three years. So a lot of these things they, they're trying to do is to make sure while people are panicking about the real situation, there aren't outside interference on the situation and uh, making sure people get the information that they need. That makes a lot of sense, Min. And we know that RFA Mandarin and Cantonese services have been reporting on Chinese disinformation and also that Taiwan is one of the leading countries in confronting it and uh, possibly have even wisdom to pass on to the rest of the world because it's not just limited to cross-strait disinformation campaigns. Thank you for making time for us, Min. And I hope you have a safe stay and can get to some good Taiwanese food as soon as you can. I'm a person who, as a student in 1980, had my first real authentic Chinese food in Taipei across the street from my campus. Well, I hope the situation will be under control soon. I'm confident and uh, I definitely will have some delicious Taiwanese food for you, Paul. Well, thank you and safe travel. Thanks for that view from Taiwan, Min. And here's hoping you can hit your favorite restaurants before long. Now we turn to Myanmar. Since the coup launched on February the 1st, Eyes on Asia has discussed the mass protests, military defections, and the plight of journalists under threat of harm and arrest from the military authorities. All important matters that have grabbed headlines in these past three months or so. But this week we examined something less sensational, how the insecurity and economic chaos has affected people's everyday lives. To get a sense of this, I spoke by phone with a journalist in Yangon, who gives us, I think, an impartial view of the situation in the city and the morale of the people who live there. For safety reasons, we're not naming him. Please take a listen. Well, thank you very much for joining us all the way from Yangon. How are you doing? I'm pretty well. Thank you. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Can you maybe, first of all, just tell us a little bit about how has daily life changed in Yangon since the coup, which happened, you know, nearly four months ago now? The things change a lot in, in our city, Yangon. The life are significantly uh, harder than before. We can see many people are queuing uh, in their ATM machines and hundreds of people are waiting in the queue for getting cash from the machines and from the bank. People, they, they are they, they are not very relaxed. They are not very happy to, to see their face, you know, because they are full of tensions for their daily survival. I can imagine. So when people queue at ATMs, are they able to get the money they need? Well, people, they can get very limited cash in from the ATM machines. 
government servants, people like uh, like like the company workers, the cash from ATM machines for their salary, uh, two hundred thousand uh charts they can they can get from ATM machines per time per day. Yes, uh, th that's about hundred and fifty dollars. About hundred and fifty dollars. But how long do you have to queue up to get money out? Well, wow, that's so long. Four a.m. in the in the early morning, they have to wake up and uh, make a queue for for their cash, you know, for our ATM machines. And why is there such a long queue at the ATM? Is it because the the banks are still closed, or there's a shortage of money? They don't have a lot of cash, and they only are allowed to to save the money in the in the bank and not withdraw the money. So they only allow people to de to deposit money in the bank, not to take yes. out the money. If you want to take out yes. the money, you've got to queue up at the ATM. It is, yes. You mentioned that people are more tense now. Can you say a little bit more about what life is like under military rule and why people are more tense? People are getting worried for their money, for their, uh, for their business, and as well for their their security. Many bomb attack uh, in the city, but although they don't know who, who is planting the bomb in the city area, and every day there are two or three bomb attack in the city during these days. And people, they are, their life is not safe, not being safe. So they, they don't want to go out. If they have to go out, they have to go very rash, you know, what sort of targets are being bombed? So far, the bomb is planted uh, around their township uh, administration's office or in their crowded area, somewhere like a supermarket, near the supermarket, and the junction of the city and in the residential areas. Does it seem like the bombs are being planted by people who are against the coup? Nobody can confirm for who is the who is arranging, who is setting the bomb in their city area. But people right here, they don't have uh, the materials to, to plant the bomb, you know. They don't, they don't know the technique. They thought that this is from their military uh, sources, you know. The military, they are controlling the whole city and every corner have the security forces and they are watching on, on the people, you know. So no, no one can plant the boom apart from the military. Do you see many protests on the streets these days? You know, after the coup, we saw massive protests in Yangon and other places. How about now? I don't see many of the protests in, in the city, but the people, they just appear in the crowd uh, with, with the stickers and some after a, a short time, they just disappear. So it's not money of the protest are around the city. Very, very few protests we can see today. And, and presumably that's because people are afraid of being shot by the security forces. Exactly, yes. Um, the security forces are around the corner, around the city. So people, they, they don't want to present in, in front of the security forces like before. Do the security forces and the police go to people's houses? I mean, have you had security forces go to, to your neighborhood and knock on people's doors? Yes, yes. A couple of weeks ago, yes, it, it happened uh, next to my, my building. But there, there were four young people. They were being arrested. They were being arrested by the police, yes. 
but they still are uh, banging the pots and singing the song uh, at night time. Yes, around eight, eight, eight to eight fifteen. I mean, I know at the start of the after the coup, it was very popular for people to show their opposition to the military by banging pots and pans and and singing. Do many people do that these days? Yes, they do. They still are doing this uh, banging pots and uh, singing the slogans uh, against the military coup. You know. What do you think the mood of the people is like? Do you think people are still hopeful that they can get rid of the military government, or have people given up hope? As far as I, I feel that people they have uh, they ne- they will never give up, and they are waiting for uh, the perfect timing. Although they don't have arms, although they 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 are scared of the military, but they are just waiting for their the chances to against the military. They they never ever will support their military uh, groups. You know. Can you tell me a little bit about the economy? Are there shortages of certain goods and food? Yes, yes. We uh, the price. Uh, for example, the the imported edible things from thailand from china the price went up you know the price are getting double gasoline is going up uh, like the price is double you know can i ask you is it safe to travel around the city or travel outside the city these days it's not it's not safe for for the people police they can they can arrest in any minutes in any seconds you know if they suspect the people going around the city you know if they feel that it's suspected persons, they can arrest immediately, you know. So people, they don't go out. I've heard that sometimes police and security forces check people's phones. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. What, what we do is, you know, uh, I use the Facebook, the social media, uh, you know. But if I go out, I have to change my telephone with my wife, phones. And so I just keep it my own phone in my home. So if they see that uh, somebody is using the Facebook and on their Facebook page, if they see that somebody who is supporting the CDM, uh, like civil disobedience movement, or like uh, national unity government, the governments that they don't like and they don't support, and they they try to uh, arrest the people. So people, they don't want to speak with the security forces and they just keep phone in their home if they go out. Do many people have access to the internet now? A week ago, the internet is being uh, reinstalled. You know, people they can use the mobile SX. Mobile internet is available again. Yes, it is. Yes, but it's not not in everywhere of the country. Um, most of the big city. So that's an improvement because for quite a few weeks there was no mobile internet, right? It it was yes. How are people getting their news? Do they get it off the internet? Do they listen to the radio or TV? Uh, it depends on the area. For example, in the city is from the internet access, but uh, in the remote area, for example, like a hilly region or rural area, they use their radio. Some of my friends in the rural area, they told me that they use their radio since the coup because the internet connection is not available in that area. When they are reaching to the to the market, they find first the batteries for the radio in place of buying food. Wow. And in the city, I mean, were they using the radio when the internet was down? 
Actually, yes, many people until the last week, you know, people they they still use the radio for their informations, you know. How about satellite TV? I understand that the junta banned people using satellite dishes. The military uh, forces they ban the satellite dishes, mostly in the rural area, because the the people in the rural area they use the satellites. It's it's very cheap and it can have the access to the news news channel like a DVB or Mizimar, like a local news or RFA. People people they they hide they hide the satellite dishes, you know. They try to hide that in between the roof and their the ceiling, you know. They try to hide hide the satellites, but most of the people they they don't have those kinds of idea. So, what do you think is gonna happen in the future in Myanmar? It's now four months since the military took control. And you told me that you think, you know, people are never going to accept the rule of the military. So what do you think is going to happen in the coming months? We, we cannot tell what will happen next, you know. Uh, but we can feel that people, their life will be harder than uh, today because the price of the goods are going up and people, they don't have cash. We, we just worry for next uh, two or three months. If... All the foods and all the all the service sectors will go down. People they will come out from in, in the streets, you know. Like before in two thousand seven, we have uh, the price of the gasoline or the price of uh, local transportations are are getting are getting up. And the suffering revolutions. I mean the the monk, the Buddhist monk, they started the revol- revolutions of uh, two thousand seven. You know. So l- like this uh, uprising, they will. They will go to the streets for sure, yeah. So if the economic situation gets worse and people become more desperate, you think there'll be mass protests again? Yes, I think so. If not, the, the, the military, they, they, they will have a second plan. What can I say? They can control the country like uh, economic or keep going, you know. I guess it remains to be seen. Thank you very much for telling us about what life is like now in Myanmar after the coup. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt, and to our friend in Yangon for helping us take the pulse of life in Myanmar's main city. You have to wonder how people there and elsewhere in the country are going to react if economic hardships do worsen. Will they start coming out in the streets again in large numbers? Yes, I, you know, I must admit, Paul, I hadn't contemplated that, given the risks of getting shot by the military for those people who would go on the streets. But, you know, there's still clearly huge resentment about the military takeover. We've also seen civilian militia taking the fight to the security forces in many places. So one thing seems sure, there's more instability to come. Anyway, please join us next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia with Paul Eckert. This series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again. For more.